if you want to interpret that like materially, economically, there might be an economic argument that we're living in a, in a, in a moment where productivity is very important again. Right. No one, I don't know many folks who don't spend some time as a freelancer now. Mm. It seems like it's we're in the gig economy mm. where personal productivity is very important to uh, uh, our everyday lives. Yeah. I wonder if that's bleeding a little bit into the activities that we do beyond it. You don't see your running as as isolated from the rest of your life. I certainly don't see. Right, I don't. You don't see your activity, the sports, the things you do. You're, so even our leisure time sort of interpenetrated uh, through, through some of the larger, not necessarily anxieties, but motivations that we have. Hi friends, Jeffrey Wu here, and welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. Many of our conversations have centered around actionable interventions for peak physical performance. But something I've been wanting to dive into is the more philosophical side of fitness and performance and how it ties into broader society. How does the growing culture of running reflect larger worldwide trends? How do we as a society and culture play a better role in promoting health? What exactly has been attracting everyday people to compete in marathons and triathlons and really push themselves to their limits? We explore these topics with Sam Robinson, who holds a PhD in history and has really become a centerpiece in the endurance community here in the Bay Area. His writing, published in outlets like Outside Magazine, focuses on the culture, experience, and inner lives of endurance athletes. And he uses sport as a lens that provides unseen perspectives around us. This episode is one of our longer, more philosophical ones, but I promise it's one that you want to stay for the whole ride. As always, please send us a note at podcast at hvmn.com. Without further ado, let's get started. Hey, Sam, thanks for coming on the program. Jeff, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. So it's, you have a kind of an interesting background and, and fill us in here, yeah. where it sounds like you come at performance and physiology from a very philosophical yeah. Uh, thoughtful framework, which resonates with me personally as mm -hmm. someone who isn't an athlete or isn't a soldier, but comes from an engineering physics sort of background, applying that lens towards human performance. Curious to hear your perspective and, and how you think about this space here. So I come from a background in the humanities. I just recently finished up my doctorate at UC Berkeley okay. in the history department of all places, which is okay. maybe a little bit different from some of the folks that you've chatted with. But I'm from books and words and, and, and literature and philosophy and intellectual history and culture. I did my dissertation on materiality in early modern England, which mm. is roughly England between the years 1500 and, and 1800, you know, from Columbus to the revolutions. But I was really interested in uh, the intersections of culture and science. Okay. My dissertation was on how there are all these messy intersections, particularly in the 17th century, in the period of time we would call the, the early enlightenment, when people began to think really hard about the human body. And, and so the way it's like a Newton yes. era. Okay. Yeah, a little bit before Newton, but guys who are preceding him. Okay. And I was always really interested in the real marginal figures, the real kind of wacky guys, your fellows who were your vegetarians wondering why they were decided to not eat meat, your sectarian thinkers who had some off the wall thinking. Right. Um, but that's sort of the background that I come from. And as an undergrad, I double majored in, in history and philosophy. And so I'm really interested in ideas and why people think about their ideas and what their motivations are for thinking about the thoughts that they have and what could be the historical influences upon them. 
And that's the perspective that I bring to a lot of the writing that I do outside of academia. I'm really curious about how the culture that we live in and the society that we live in shapes and structures our, our notions of the world around us. And it's a perspective that I bring to my participation in sport. I like to be kind of introspective about why I make decisions and the activities that I do that, that I make. So that's, that's, you know, sort of a general sense of where I'm coming from in terms of intellectual trajectory and background. I don't know, does that, does that help a little bit? In yeah, terms no, of, I'm yeah. a big history reader. Um, yeah. I think it's something that's underrated perhaps in modern discourse where yeah. I, I think there's a depth to understanding how the discourse is set today. But right? right. like just typical structures in, right. in, in dialogue that we just take for granted. And right. I think seeing how these structures came into place, I think it's important. Because like, what are the assumptions that's baked into, like, what does postmodernism mean? Yeah, like, exactly. What are all these terms that are sort of bandied out in, right. in common discourse? And I think if you don't have the history for it, you're just, you're just not equipped to engage in a thoughtful discussion. You're, right. you're, you're basically playing with like Legos when people are building structures with steel. Yeah, and that's it's you're you're way ahead of the curve when you're thinking of it like that as these sort of conversations that are evolving and changing to reflect the world around us, right? right. And we we are very much sort of thrown into conversations that are already happening. Yeah. And knowing what those narratives are and how they've changed gives you a real leg up in sort of how you can understand yeah. the world around you. History is not just like facts on the page. Right. History is people debating about the meaning of the world around them by using right. the resources of the past. Yeah. And so like, you know, you see, that's why the conversation is always shifting. People are looking at the same stuff that people have looked at before sometimes, right. but then trying to say new things with yeah. it. And that's always very exciting that there's that, you know, the same resources that people were looking at 200 years ago can mean different things given uh, the problems that we're facing today. Right. And so that it's always been something that I found very invigorating and energizing that there's always new interpretations, new arguments that can be teased right. from the world behind us and new things to be discovered as yeah. well. Sometimes it is terra incognita. Sometimes yeah. it is new knowledge, new stuff that we've found. And right. that's particularly exciting. But even when it isn't, those resources can help us maybe understand the world around us as it's changing in real time. And yeah. so, yeah. And so those are sort of the motivations that it got me into it. It's kind of the way that I think when, so when I write stuff about distance running or uh, modern sport, it's kind of the framework that I'm thinking about yeah. or that I have. In the no, I mean, I think the part of me just thinks that if I didn't focus more on the technical side, I think studying philosophy would be a very yeah. fun activity. I mean, that's kind of what I do as a hobby, actually. Just like, yeah pull up like Russell Bertrand's like history of Western philosophy, just like read through that. Yeah. I mean, just like, yeah, I think it's important to just understand like, like what is Adam Smith capitalism? Like, yeah. what is that actually? Right. Like we all, like, again, these are topics that everyone kind of assumes and right. no one actually really understands it. Yeah. Yeah. Like the invisible hand is the most misinterpreted slogan in yeah. the history of uh, the world. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Well, I'm yeah. just actually curious. I mean, yeah. I think we could talk about philosophy. I think that right. could yeah, be yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, broadly yeah. fun. I'm, I'm actually yeah. curious in terms of perhaps for the sake of this conversation, right. Focusing on human performance and sports, of course, yeah. potentially just expanding out to broader cultural discussion. I mean, I think right. if that's of, of interest to you. Yeah. Let's so where was your personal interest in sport? I mean, it sounds like your wife is a trainer yeah. in the sports world. Right. How did, you, how did your personal trajectory come and intersect from the history and philosophy yeah. angle into yeah. sport? How did I get into, so I'm a distance runner, and but I've done a lot of different things. I think I got into sport more generally in the, in the way that a lot of middle-class kids in the 90s did you know grew up in the suburbs of a medium-sized town and you know as middle-class parents often did in the 90s they 
I did like the four sports throughout the year, <laughs> throughout the season, right? So I did the swimming in the summer and then soccer in the fall and then basketball in the winter and then baseball in the spring. Yeah. And it's like, you're going to do these things so that you're well-rounded and have good yeah. character. Similar background as me. I, exactly. I playing yeah. a little bit. Of, I stuck with tennis, but I remember doing like little league. Uh-huh. What, like T-ball? I don't think, I, yeah, it was like T-ball. You got some soccer. You yeah. got some basketball. Yeah, it was, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, as like a 110-pound kid in yeah. high school, there was going to eventually be a limit to my progress in some of these sports. Right. I'm not going to be a playing basketball. So I, I really enjoyed soccer, I thought, for a long time in middle school and in high school. As it happens, my interests began to narrow a little bit and become a little bit more specialized. And, you know, I joined club teams and was playing on some of these sports and got very interested in trying to see how far I could go in these things. Mm -hmm. But with these team sports, there are real limits to how far you can go given the opportunities that are around you and, and the quality of your team. And there was going to be a point where I was going to need to either get more guidance or search out, you know, stronger club or something. And I don't think I knew enough to even be able to get there. And, you know, I grew up in this kind of exurban town near Charlotte, North Carolina. It wasn't like the Bay Area where there's such a strong, you know, cutthroat competition in all right. the different sports, right? Was so, it like the military just more of like a route of competition then? Because obviously there's a bit of there is a lot of military yeah. in the south yeah. um i think what it was was i mean my mom grew up as a distance runner and so she competed in high school and on cross country and track and field teams and then competed in college so there was this sort of like oh well you're always a really good runner and you know i played positions in soccer like midfield and things like that so one spring because there wasn't, I, w I guess I, there wasn't soccer, it was a season I wasn't playing soccer or right. something. Uh, I jumped on the track track and field team and actually didn't do that well, you know, in, in the big scheme of things. I was okay as a freshman, right. but it was not like brilliance, you know? But it wasn't until I think my sophomore year of high school, a cross-country coach went, you know, we really need somebody. For, it was a small school. It's kind of a rural area. Distance running wasn't very big in the South in the right. 90s. And, you know, I just sort of jumped into it and did pretty well and was rewarded. And that positive feedback in terms of, you know, finishing um, in the top of like a county meet and then towards the top of a, of a conference meet and then a, a sectional meet and a regional meet and then qualifying for the state championships. That kind of positive reinforcement was really important in changing directions and getting into the sport. And it happened at a time when you're a teenager, you're looking for your identity. And I began to see that as a path. And so, and then the rest is just sort of, it's sort of history. I jumped all in on doing distance running. So cross country uh, in the fall and, and track and field. And then my junior, senior year started trying to, you know, I was like, I'm going to do this in college. I'm, you know, come hell or high water. I was really fascinated to, so this is a very long-winded way of saying, like, how do I go from the his history thing to the running stuff? And how, as I was doing that, I was really interested in the ways in which the sport was, what people in the Middle Ages would have called a habitus, a regime of practice. Mm. I was fascinated by training. I was fascinated by learning about the physiological changes that you could induce upon your body. I was fascinated by how the very act of running for miles and miles would physically and psychologically shape myself. I didn't have a vocabulary for that. In fact, the only vocabulary I had for those kind of changes was like Darwinian just because I'd read in a biology textbook. Right. So I remember my AOL, back when AOL Instant Messenger was a thing, right. but way before Facebook, and my AOL handle or AIM handle, Instant Messenger yeah, handle AIM. was a, yeah. yeah, AIM, Evolving Runner. 
Huh. And because I wanted to like evolve into the best. Funny, it's more runner. Lamarckian, right? Because like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Lamar- yeah. like if you're technical, yeah. right? Because like Lamarck was sure. like, within an individual's lifespan. Like you kind of shift your. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the, I think in modern context, epigenetics versus genetics, where yeah, Darwin is more of an intergenerational yeah slow evolution. But like you're talking about like altering yourself within one. I would never have had the ability to have made that distinction between yeah. Lamarck and Darwin yeah. at, at 17, yeah. but I was intuitively interested in it yeah and in, and interested in using my myself and my body as the tableau in which that was going to happen and as happens right this is fed into i think a lot of people who get into the sport you know into you know these performance oriented sports are type a personalities yeah. we're we're very goal oriented there are dangerous bits of that as well i you know had a little bit of body dysmorphia and and mm. was, you know, struggling a little bit at a period of time in terms of making sure i was eating well and became a little bit more fixated on weight and so you're trying to gain weight or lose weight? lose weight Okay. Yeah, stay thin. It Which never is got kind to of the, the opposite problem for men usually. Yeah, yeah. Although not uncommon, particularly right. in distance running, where there makes sense. Yeah, where there's a real emphasis on leanness and yeah. and body fat ratios yeah. and oxygen output to muscle. So I don't want to suggest that I've like had a long struggle with eating disorders or anything like that. People right. do, and, right. and it's especially acute among female distance runners. Yeah. But it affects men as well. And yeah. so there was a little bit of that, like at the edges of this. Right. Now I'm more aware of it. And and eventually I became cognizant of that. I was like, right. okay, it's time to eat dinner, right. right? We need to address this and make sure that this doesn't become, it's becoming a performance detriment, right. I think was what right. I began to realize. Right. And so got over it, it that yeah. way. But so that's sort of the personal thinking that got into it and yeah. took me on the path of running in the NCAA in college and then running post-collegiately and continuing the trajectory that I am now. I think this is my 20th year of running yeah. at a competitive level. What's or the do- distance? What's what's your jam? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, kind of getting, becoming an old KG veteran now. And so, um, you know, marathon, half marathon, I okay. still do some of the shorter stuff. Okay. I'm scared to step on the track now to do 5Ks <laughs> and 10Ks because there's yeah. always young kids who are showing up right out of college and they've got the fast twitch turnover and those things are hard, hard, harder to hold on to. But I'm a little bit stronger than I was. Yeah, and what are your typical times to just give a sense of... So I'm, I guess what would you would call like a, a respectable amateur. Okay. So I'm a, I ran a Cal International Marathon uh, last December with a small personal best of 228.20, I think. Which and is averaging sub six minute miles. Yeah, I think it's around like five forty something. It's impressive. Yeah, I was on That's pace moving. to run around like two twenty five, two twenty six, and the last four miles were a little tough. The night before, I I flew across the country at a death in the family, and so I was like going, mm. you know, you got to get back for the home team, regardless of whether you have a peak race. But so I was right. coming back and was really really tired yeah, yeah. that race and felt it in the last little bit. So yeah. I was pretty happy regardless. But yeah. and uh, in the half marathon, I've run a one oh eight. 30-ish, 108-32, I think, Okay, which is probably a little bit faster relative to the marathon time. Right. But I was right out of college. You're speedy. I mean, you're yeah. a, you're, you're, a com- you're a very, very confident runner. This yeah. It's not like amateur. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, how many miles a week are you running then? It depends. We're in the training cycle. Nowadays, I'll usually don't go over 100 miles a week very often. This week, for example, I'm building up again for CIM, for Cal International Marathon which is about, I think, 14 weeks out this week. And so this week I'm going to be at about between 86 to 88 miles, depending on how far I can go tomorrow. i got a plane flight to catch. And so it's like whether, you know, it's it's a lot. Yeah, no, you're definitely moving. And it's been fun because I've been 
kind of just getting into running yeah. or I'm doing or maybe you what know, kind of events are, are you have you been running I just did a half marathon like about a month I did a SF half marathon oh did you do the first half or the second, second half? half the second half I've yeah. done that yeah yeah it's, it's a screaming fun. downhill after the park right yeah yeah, yeah it's a nice afternoon out or a nice morning out did under two hours so I think I had to get under two hours yeah but like you go almost lap me there so but the these t- the time barriers are important right like they count for a lot yeah so what do you think would you do you want to keep staying with the sport in terms of developing well, uh, I, your abilities I think in it this is where the philosophical side kind of plays into it where uh-huh. again my background has always been in tennis I, I, that's where right. I grew up playing hated cross country yeah it's like one of those things where in high school you could either like like you got to play something on, on the off season, right? Yeah, yeah. And then like I was maybe going to do cross country because it seemed like a reasonable thing to just boost aerobic base. But then I just like waved out of it because you can, if you're like playing tennis right. at a high level, high enough level or whatever, right. you could just like do like your independent tennis practice. I'm training, I'm training in tennis. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what I ended up doing. But I think in recent, probably the last year or so as we're engaging in, in the human HVMN community with runners, triathletes, right soldiers, it became kind of a primal thing. It seemed like I wasn't like a proper human being if I couldn't like run a few miles. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I think the typical American or typical modern human doesn't really run at all. Mm -hmm. And if they do run, it's like, I talk to my peers in, you know, just like, you know, everyday like office workers, they might run like a mile on the treadmill before lifting some weights. And that's like the status quo. Right. And when you're talking to soldiers, they're doing mm-hmm. like their 10 mile, 13 mile mm-hmm. rucks every day, or, yeah. you know, just like as part of like, okay, this is like a baseline level of fitness. Yeah. yeah. And then you just think about us evolutionarily, like how could we be so weak where mm-hmm. we can't even move for like mm-hmm. 20 minutes? Yeah. So it just got yeah. me thinking like yeah. why we should have some sort of standard for ourselves in terms of just like baseline mm-hmm. aerobic capacity. And that just got me down the route of like, okay, like let's put in, 15, 20 miles a week, let's mm-hmm. put in, let's, let's start running some timed events. It's really important to build up to from, you know, everything that's new. It's not a learning curve. It's a, an adaptation yeah. curve, right? And so if you throw way too much onto your, your like if you were yeah. to jump up to 80 miles a week, I would, I, if I had, if I were a betting man, Jeff, I would say you'd probably <laughs> I'd, get hurt. I'd break my yeah. ankles, yeah. But it is definitely something that that folks can, you know, can like you can do more. Right? Yeah. It's always, the th- and obviously there are the, there's the balancing of, of life and work and things right. like that and and running a business that you guys are doing right. that, that comes into the factor. But one of the reasons I like the sport is, is because it's so democratic. There's really not that many barriers to jumping into it. Yeah. It's a pair of shoes. Right. And, you know, those are, they're pricey, but you can get into those and then that's all. And you, it's easy to fit into a schedule. It's easy to do regardless of location. Right. Um, and yeah, there are like places where you should, you can't go running. Right. right. But, you know, the Bay is a great place for training. We get, a, we've gotten a little bit of a preview of what it's like when there are environmental factors with all these wildfires. The air quality has right. been a little bit bad as yeah. of late. Like that's the case in other parts of the world. But yeah. we're very blessed generally to live in a country and place where there are opportunities for it. And I think, you know, there's just about, as you said, like we're a very sedentary culture. It's about figuring out ways in which we can encourage that and make it more widespread so that the status quo isn't 
jogging uncomfortably on a treadmill for a mile yeah. before pumping some weight and then yeah. sitting in our cars and then and moving to our yeah. office where we sit for another eight hours. We yeah. get back in our cars, sit for an hour to go back to eat our microwave and, food. Yeah, and I think yeah. as someone that's not like a professional athlete or was a serious athlete, like yeah. that is like considered great. Right. Like you're at least going out there a few times a week to do right. something active. And I think and I think yeah. that's like something that I've realized in terms of culture. That's right. like not good enough. We should mm. set higher standards of expectations for ourselves. Yeah. Do you think it's setting higher standards or do you think it is trying to figure out ways to make those activities easier to do? Or, or this is ba we're basically just saying like how to make people more healthy, like lives of movement, lives of physical worth. Yeah. Is it about creating standards or is it about because I, I kind of think of it as about, you know, lowering the barriers of entry as sort of the perspective that I see, like making it easier to where. But, you know, but I think, I think yeah. the argument you're saying, like it's yeah. friggin' easy to just go outside right. and like run around the block seven times. Yeah. Like I, like this, I think that's like one of the things I think running is so pure. It is right. so primal. Right. Like right. You don't need like a hundred dollar tennis racket. Like yeah. I was relatively blessed where my parents could afford mm -hmm, to put me mm -hmm. to, you know, tennis, you know, get me on a court. I mean, some of the best runners are East right. Africa. They're yeah. just out there running. Correct. Yeah. And so I think maybe some of it is becoming a bit evangelical about the sport itself, about the activity. Yeah. And not just pitching it to folks like you and I, but thinking yeah. like, this is something that is Well, I'm actually from a historical perspective. Yeah. Maybe you can add some color here. As, right. Yeah. As yeah. maybe have hmm. read more about this. But it seems to me that within the last 20, 30 years with this sort of everybody's a winner culture, right. PC culture, you can't say, hey, you're slow, Bobby, or right. Jane, like you need to run faster. Like you might be a little bit overweight and that's not healthy for you, like just run. And like, if you don't run a certain m amount, like maybe you don't get like an A in physical education. Mm -hmm. Is that like, I, I, I sense that from a cultural perspective and just how we engage with people. I think the beauty of America is that there's like multicultural, there's multiple right. paths of, of life. And I think that's like the beauty of America, but I'm yeah. just wondering, has it started to backfire in a sense where there's no longer some sense of direction? To me, there, there is some truth that as a nation state, if you want to encourage a more healthful society, yeah. there is just some direction that we should be encouraging more than other directions. Yeah, I think a lot of it would be about, I don't know if it is, if, if it's the participation culture, uh, participation award culture problem, as it is trying to create opportunities of, for these activities that are actually more inclusive as opposed to less inclusive. And I say that as I come from a place of relative, of real privilege, particularly growing up in the South, where you could see where the, as we sent mentioned, right? Like we both come from that every sport, a seasoned family, yeah. right? Where that was very much find your passions, right? right? And I don't think that a lot of Americans, to say specifically, right. get those opportunities. And so figuring out ways to make those interests evident to others to show like here are the places in which you can do it. And a good example of that that's happening in real time now across the Bay is Running for a Better Oakland, which is this nonprofit that's oriented by the runners of Oakland. I right. mean, they're running clubs that are literally volunteering to do this to sort of show um, students from, from underprivileged backgrounds. Like this is how easy this is. Right. Here are the resources that can do it. Here are the spaces that these public spaces that belong to you right. where you can do this. Right. And that is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I think it, it will display to a wider 
demographic of people, some of the real, not just advantages, but real benefits that these activities can do. And so I'm hopeful about that. And so figuring out ways to like, not just create more of these, these organizations, because there's right. always another nonprofit, right. but figuring out ways to like really enable their work and to maybe in, expand upon it. And whether that means, you know, it, I think it's a combination of like of social conversations like we're having now right. or political changes. That's sort of part of the reason it works is because Lake Merritt is a lot nicer of a place to run around than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. It's safe, it's cleaner. It's nicer. Yeah. That took real effort on the part of, of the city government. And so stuff like the a col collaboration of public and private interests, I think. And so, yeah, there's probably a, a notion of, you know, where we need to be, we need to maybe stirring up what it is that it means to, to be fit right. and think a little bit about this. But I also think that it's about real engagements in the community around us that will show the benefits of these activities. Yeah, no, I think you bring up a good point. I think those are the types of initiatives that right. we should be encouraging where the role models or just the, that like you can't like necessarily just look up to LeBron James like his life is just unrealistic but if there's like local right. on the ground community members that are just right. saying hey it's not that hard to run three miles yeah it's not that hard to run around the park and this is like kind of what we do for stretching and and I think my personal journey through running was that I just like didn't know how you could like like it was just painful to run for like an hour right yeah. And I remember the first few times, I think in, in a current culture where you're just like addicted to your phone, like you were like, right. I want to like, I feel like I'm like, I need to like just get some information. Like, yeah. I'm missing about? something. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah. I, I remember asking Michael Brandt, you know, yeah. who's a serious runner, getting more and more serious into running. Like, what do you think about all the time? Right. Right. And I think that's what people would ask me, like when you're running like half mm -hmm. a marathon, like, mm -hmm. what are you thinking about? Like mm -hmm. you're in, out on the road for an hour and a half, two hours. What do you think about? And it's like, now it's like very meditative, reflective. Like it's yeah, nice. Yeah. I you almost I kind of miss that mental state of being. Yeah. But I think people when they don't run enough are just getting into that hump where that's even comfortable. They don't. Right. They, that's like right. they say, oh, it's hard. Like they right. find it too hard to not do like anything digital for twenty minutes and give up. Right. So I think it's like people on the ground telling them like, no, like I was there. I'm you literally six months ago. Yeah. And I just did it a few times and powered through and punched through. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting you talk about sort of the, the meditativeness yeah. of of the of running. I had a professor I was taking a seminar with who found out that I was, you know, a pretty competitive runner. Yeah. And he kind of asked, well, how many miles do you run? I told him. He was like, yeah. oh, my gosh. So, well, you must think about a lot when you're running. And and I remember, like, actually, I don't think about much at all. Or if I do think, it's very, it's a very, almost very flowing form right. of thought. It's transient. Right? Yeah, it's it, not it, intensive. Right. But I think, I mean, when I think now, you know, we're, we are so you know, we're always looking at, we're engaging yeah. with some sort of content throughout our lives. We're cyborgs always sort of, you know, right. stuck on our screens and thinking about stuff that's sort of flitting through our right. eyeballs. You know, when I'm running, it's a one moment where usually I'm on a little unplugged yeah. and you can let your mind take the direction right. You're not it wants listening to, to music, right? Like Sometimes I will when okay. I'm really tired, I'll okay. use it. Like on my mo Mondays is sometimes my music day or podcast day. Okay. Where just getting out the door, like yeah. if I've done a long, long run the day yeah. before and I'll be a little bit tired, just yeah. listening to some music can be helpful. So I'm not technology agnostic. Uh, well, I or guess I'm technology phobic. agnostic. I'm not technology phobic. Yeah, I be, I like I, I tore out all the you earbuds. Do all of it, nothing. Because this it got distracting to me. I yeah. enjoyed like being my own head. I put the do not disturb on. Okay, I don't want the outside world getting in me. But except even like for lyrics, the voice. like I don't want to like. Yeah, I don't know. You're listening to some pop song. And you're like they're talking about love or. Yeah, this thing like Hamilton talking about like making America. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to too run. much, too much. Too I'm much, trying to much, run. Yeah, I'm trying to just run. I, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. I guess I just there's sometimes where I'm so tired 
that I just, I need a little bit of a distraction yeah. when I'm doing it. And I think it's, it's especially like in a heavy training cycle yeah. when it's like, oh, I got to go out for another 10 miles. Yeah. Like, not, you know, like anything, I don't want to do this. Or, right. You know, and at a certain point, when you're doing this heavy training, there are going to be days you don't want to do it. Yeah. And it's, it's not meditative. It's right. my stomach hurts, my legs yeah. hurt. So I think, you know, get to the, how to get people to that. I mean, you're right. I, you know, cause I started in the sports so early that I don't really remember. And I was, you know, it was very active, you know, right. like when, when you're playing soccer, you're running, I don't know how many miles in, right. a, in, a, in a game or a practice. So the transition from that to running wasn't very much. And then just as I was growing up, I was doing more and more and kind of, you know, uh, acclimating to the effort. But after college, I had a lot of injuries though in college and eventually reached the point in my senior year where I was struggling to get out of bed and put my pants on. I was always so hurt. And I walked away from it and got into cycling and was racing my bike for uh, seven or eight months or so, not that oh. long. But then when I came back from that, I remember like I was doing a ride and I, I like crashed in a previous race and I was really worried. I was like, you know, eventually my, my number is going to come up. I'm going to break my femur. I don't know mm. if I'm ready for that. I don't really have health insurance. So I biked back in the middle of this training where I was like, I think I'm done. And took off my bib and put on some running shorts with my bad cycling tan lines. Yeah. I went out to go run by like staple three mile loop that I did in my hometown. Yeah, and it was awful. Like I, like my stomach hurt and yeah. and like my head hurt. I never had my head hurt from running before, but it finally gave me a sense of insight. This is why people complain about running. This is uncomfortable. Yeah. It took a couple of weeks to get back into get the groove. Fully adapted again. Yeah. yeah. So I I empathize and so. Yeah, I, but there eventually though, if you have I any, it's if like you have, telling stories, yeah. like yeah, yeah, it sucks for everyone. Like yeah, I, I think you talk to Michael, you talk to some of the elite runners, and dirt, like yeah, it still sucks every time they're out there. Like right, it's still cold if you're yeah. like, running at six a.m. It is work. still dark and cold and all. I was out this morning yeah. before the sun rose. I guess in the fog, smoke yeah. fog that we had this morning, and I saw it was weird. I was out running on these trails. The light was just beginning to pick up. And I saw this coyote that had killed an animal, was dragging this animal out into yeah. the woods in the Oakland Hills. And he was, he was running down the trail. He was just far enough away. Couldn't see what he was eating. But I thought, I feel like that dead animal right now. It's so early. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I, I empathize yeah. with it. So, but it gets better. I mean, yeah. it's, it, not every day is like that. Yeah, what yeah. motivates you? I mean, I think, yeah. to give you, like, I think what motivated me was just like seeing my colleagues. Right. Like they're like, you know, yeah. Like Michael wasn't a professional athlete, but like right. now he's like doing like pretty reasonable times. Right. Yeah. And I just saw like, you know, he's not a magic being, but he just worked hard, had discipline. And then yeah. you talk to like, you know, some of our, you know, our customers who are athletes or military. And again, like you talk to them, they're like a real human being. Like you look at like a, right. you're like, wow, like you clearly have done a lot more than me, but I understand that you're not a different alien to me. Right. Like I, I feel like I, if I put in some time, I could come within your right. range. Right. And I think just seeing and being exposed to people at, from a very high level, it made yeah. it like real to me that, yes, yeah, I can at least get within the realm right. of being in the same universe as you. Yeah. I think of those folks as accessible heroes. Yeah. You know, they're there. You can, you can empathize with them. You can relate to with their lives. Yeah. You see that you know they're similar to yours and then they're inspiring right. that you can do that. Yeah. I think that explains a lot of why in some of these more niche sports, there are people who are very popular on social media who aren't necessarily the fastest right. folks out there. They're just the ones whom you can empathize with right. and relate to yeah. and sympathize with when they, when they have difficulties. My motivations have changed a lot over the years. I was very self-focused for a long time, personal yeah. improvement, personal best, getting, you know, 
trying to be become all conference, trying to become all region, trying to qualify for meets, trying to get faster, faster, faster. Right. Now, as you know, personal bests are fewer and farther between. There are longer stretches of time between right. them. Still happening, but you know, not with the consistency that they had when I was 18. Right. Motivations have to change. And sometimes it's trying out a new event, a new distance, trying to accomplish, conquer that that 50K or an ultra marathon right. or something like that. But also it, for me right now in particular, I'm very community focused. I'm training with a group of folks in, in the East Bay. We're, we're known with the sort of the quirky name, the That's Fine Track Club, because if anything goes south, it's like, well, you know, that's right. fine. That's okay. Um, so they're sort of cavalier and ironic about right. about their approach to things. But however, we've got a really good training group going with a bunch of guys, a lot, some post-collegiates, some guys who didn't run in college, some ladies who, who ran in college, some ladies who didn't. Right. And we're doing a lot of work together. And I see my role more and more as being maybe sort of the moral and motivational center for a number of people as mm. opposed to just myself. And that's... It's a big motivation that's, that's when you're- responsibility to- It's like responsibility when you need to be somewhere at yeah. six in the morning for a workout and you know people are depending on you to mm -hmm. be there or, or at least expecting you to be there. Right. It's a strong motivation to get up even when you're, when you're tired. And yeah. so now, you know, it's not so much personal goals that are really getting me going and, and getting through some of these hard workouts. It's, it's trying to be part of, of the rising tide that right. lifts all the boats right. and to just be a part of that. And so, and you know- so even when I don't perform as well as I want to, it's nice, it's just really rewarding to see some of my friends who I've been training with, doing right. these workouts with, when they succeed, that that also, you feel it and reflects on right. you as well. We did a 5K on the 4th of July and I had a terrible race. It was not good. Just, you know, hip was bothering me a little bit and I was a little overtrained. I was ready for a break, had been doing some races over the summer. But one of my friends just, he won the thing and he won it, you know, his first time ever winning a race. That's so exciting. So you're just First time he'd ever broken yeah. the tape, yeah. right? And you'd be training with this guy for a year and yeah. you just know he's never, he's never gotten the win. And John won and, he, and, and it was, it's really, it vitalizing, right? right? It's like, okay, like, that's great. We all gain from that. And yeah. so that sense of trying to build that community, trying to work off this group dynamic is I think there's a performance boost to that yeah. when you know people are depending on you. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I think that yeah. make, well, I was going to say that I think that makes sense in terms of I think we both very much agree that accessible heroes I think is a good term mm -hmm. um, and like that local su support that group dynamic right. is really helpful. Yeah, I'm just wondering if we just extend this out from to more of a political yeah or or structural changes. I mean yeah, would it be too extreme to say? Look, healthcare is a sixth of the American economy. Mm -hmm. uh, outcomes are getting worse, costs right. going up. Right. What if you did something like, you know, if you can run eight mid miles for five miles, which mm -hmm. is, you know, something mm -hmm. that like, you know, ranger battalions are sort of positioned to right. be. And right. you, you can hit that, you maybe get a tax break or some sort of incentive. Yeah. Will that be overly handed from a government perspective? Like, I think that's something that I've just been pondering recently. Yeah. Because I think. If you just look at the current style of medicine, right. it's very much treat symptoms. Correct. Like you are broken. All right, here are some pharmaceuticals. Right. I think a lot of people realize that and are trying to make right. it a lot more lifestyle driven, right. pre uh, intervention right. type of a lifestyle change in the culture. Right. Is it the place of government to even push that further along? Mm -hmm. I think most people would agree that community, the individual, the grassroots movement 
seems very reasonable. People right. should be more and more right. doing that and, and and attract people towards your cause. Yeah. What do you think from a historical or just like a political perspective? And those are great questions and they are big questions yeah. right now as our healthcare system is is a mess. It's actually a tragedy. You yeah. know, it's it's a not a tragedy, it's a travesty. Yeah. Tragedy implies some sort of something that's out of your control. Yeah. Whereas healthcare is a political mess of a, a lot somewhat of our own making. Yeah. You know, one worry that I would have about being overly technocratic in terms of incentivizing saying like, if you can run a mile at a certain I've thought this way. I've had yeah. this idea before. Yeah. If you can incentivize folks to be healthy, you might end up rewarding the very folks who are already healthy to begin with giving a tax break to the folks who at the moment can run, you know, an eight minute sure. mile or nine minute mile, which tend to be, so the, to you, use the parlance of our you're time. Making the, you're making you're the, bifurcating the, the, exactly. You're you, widening the, the gap the, anyway. Yeah. You're making the, the quote unquote coastal elites are just going to, of course, you're, you know, folks like me who live in Oakland with a degree who know and have had all these opportunities. Yeah. yeah they're going to, they'll get their tax benefit and they'll take right. their $200 and they'll buy some running shoes with it and do more of it. Yeah. So my fear would be that you would just, you know, widen the gap so I, I think the problem would be, my father's a family physician. Mm -hmm. One of the things he talks a lot about is that in the last 20 to 30 years, the thing that has declined has been the stuff that the market hasn't incentivized, which is not just responding to trauma or illness, as you mentioned, right? Like treating the symptoms of the yeah. larger problem, which is why all these chronic diseases, problems of, that we've diabetes, come out of. Diabetes, obesity. Neurological conditions. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Are, yeah. Pain, yeah. right? These are problems of the late capitalist society that we live in. And so how do you go about doing that? One of the issues has been the decline of of day-to-day -day primary care. Mm -hmm. We don't have the country doctor anymore right. who knows who you are, who knows your name, right. who knows your habits, who can give you the kind of guidance with which you're used to. So one thing might be investing in that day-to-day -day coverage and care that we've begun to retreat from as we've been thinking about way, like outcomes as opposed to lifestyles. Yep. And I'm no policy expert, right, on this right. front. So I don't know, I don't want to riff too, too much anecdotally. Right. But it does seem like, I don't know who my doctor is. I, I have like some fellow at Kaiser. Yeah. Actually, his name might be Jeffrey. <laughs> I, I talked to him once on the phone. I didn't yeah. even see him in person. I talked yeah. to him on the phone because I was having like a sinus infection yeah. and prescribed some antibiotics. Great, yeah. Great, right? But yeah. that guy doesn't know me. And so it might be that one of the ways to think about it would be how do you take that energy at the grassroots and stay at the grassroots, which is the point of contact, which right. is the point of human contact? How do you make the national local and the local national? Because that's where the people still believe in politics on the local level. Very few people dislike their mayor. It's interesting. You like we're such a polarized. Well, maybe okay. In San Francisco and Oakland, it can be a little bit, but yeah, and, yeah. and most of America, right? Yeah. There's not a lot of animus towards your city council or your board of education. Right. It's because these are people you have grocery, you get groceries with, right? right. They're people you know. You see them on the face to face, right. and they're dealing with the problems of everyday life. Right. So my sense is that we probably maybe need to prove that government is not a swear word. Right. And starting small and working up from there right. is probably going to be the path forward in this particular environment where things are so hyper-partisan, where any sort of, of a suggestion of government interference in, in the market is seen as a nanny state or socialism. Right. I think those are the trajectories we want to move towards, but right. I think the process has to be one of proving to folks these lifestyles, this form of engagement that we see happening in other sectors of our lives. Can, can be ported over to the problems of larger political import. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm I mean, kind of riffing a little bit. Yeah, so. I, mean, I, think, I, think, I don't think this is going to be solvable in, in a single conversation. I think, 
I mean, to my extreme, right? If you extrapolate where I'm going with like, okay, right. you have some government given incentives, then mm-hmm. does that look like an authoritarian state, right? It's like, where does that balance where, again, I think, I mean, yeah. I, almost every single country is like kind of an experiment. And I think right. the American experiment is beautiful in the sense that there is, I think this binding notion of freedom of exploration and then right. capitalism and markets. right. That I think allowed us to have all this innovation, right? But having, you know, some sense of community and social safety net, yeah, to make sure that people don't overly fall to the wayside. I think all the politics comes from like where yeah. is exactly that line? Yeah, I don't see us. I don't think the issue is creating a safety net, but creating like re enmeshing people to the communities in which they live. I think there's a real sense in which the institutions that used to bind us together have, have eroded to a great extent, yeah. which is why I've noticed people are just so hungry to do things together, right? Like right. just- to, to join like communities like- To join communities. Or like listen to the conversation like ours. Exactly, yeah. listen to conversation like ours. They're hungry yeah. for, for that. You know, like the November Project, you know, the fitness group that meets in San Francisco. Okay. Uh, it's free and there's one in Oakland as well. It's this group of people, they meet at 6 a.m. in the morning before- work, I think on Tuesday or Wednesdays. It is huge. They call them tribes of people who get together, just sort of work out together, do kind of like not necessarily functional fitness, but run a little bit, do some stairs, do some pushups and stuff. People just want to be together. It almost functions in the ways in which, you know, the church used to, right? Where it was not just belief and metaphysical understanding of the world, but people being together, right? And and thinking about the world around them together. And I think, I just feel it. I feel like folks are thirsty for that. Yes. And so I don't think I have the solutions to that. I just, I can identify the problem that we need to think about how are these ways in which we can reconnect folks together. And I think some of it are activities like we've been talking about. And I think some of it is figuring out ways to move those into other institutions, whether it's just like book clubs or town halls and community meetings and things like that, where we stop seeing each other as partisan opponents and more as connected to one another in the world in which we're living. And so that sounds a little new agey, but in the real term, like, you know, in the real world of like connections of people on the ground, folks are hungry for it. Yeah. That's, that's my perspective. At least. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah. I think that's why I think we've seen the growth of our community. I'm sure like the yeah. communities you're involved with yeah. is I think I like the void between someone that can sort of talk them through or coach them through things. And I think, yeah, I think people are, are looking at podcasts right. or I don't know if they're like gurus or, or whatnot, but like people right. that are a little bit further on the journey sharing their experiences and people can adopt and like take some of these suggestions or patterns and incorporate into their own lives. I think yeah, that's why you see like the popularity of people like Joe Rogan or Jordan right. Peterson, right. these right. types of right. intellectual dark web members where they're, I think, exploring the universe and, and their perception and their place in society and sharing their like, real thoughts about it. And I think people yeah. are like, they want to have that, communication yeah i think probably in in like the late 2000s early 10s like there's just like talking heads kind of like everyone giving you propaganda i think people are now really realizing that let's actually get real again yeah it's interesting so there was a i was there's an article in the new yorker by um i believe her name is susan worthen okay and she's a uh, an associate professor at uh, unc she works on 19th century religion okay and um interested in these like notions of community that are created around 19th century evangelical Christian religion. Okay. But she wrote a piece in New Yorker about the podcast bros, about like Rogan, about, yeah. about I guess like you and I <laughs> to yeah. extent, having these kind of conversations, yeah. Peterson. And I thought it was gonna be this like scathing 
critique. Right. And she, you know, she doesn't pull any punches. She's like, there's a reason why this is appealing to people. And there's a reason why it's, you know, it's mostly men. And there's a little bit of sort of magical thinking that's happening around this. But she concludes with this sense of, but, you know, these folks are offering something that even if I disagree with some of the content that's being said, they're not trying to divide anybody. They're actually trying to create and reimagine a world that can bring people together and connect people right. in these communities of interest and uh, activities of interest. Yeah, you know the the criticism actually ends on a positive note. These folks are filling a need and creating a kind of conversation that we would be wise to pay attention to and maybe try to emulate in other kinds of conversations. Well, I think it's important because I think this community creation, that need Mm -hmm. can either be filled by tribalism, whether it's along ethnic lines or religious lines, like you kind of devolve back into ethno states, or you can create them around why I would say hopefully more modern, postmodern groupings, right? Right. Like around similar interests or similar goals. right? I think that might be where modern society sits, where I think there is a danger. I think right. you see that with groups around racial lines being drawn. Right. Yeah. And that would be a very bad place for America to go towards. Because I think the demographics are going to change. Right. There will be, you know, it will be a, a non white majority in 30 years. Right. Right. Which I don't know. I mean, I don't even, I, is there even a historical. Mm-hmm pattern of how a country shifts when you have such big demographic changes. Uh, yeah, it, it, like, it's, yeah, yeah. Like, like I guess, yeah, like, what's an example of that? America in the 19th century, one of the things that, huh. wait, so we have such a, our, our racial history is one that is the struggle of slavery that dominates the narrative of yep. American history. One of the things that gets subsumed in that sometimes is the history of Irish people and people of, that were immigrating oh, so you're in the 19th like the century. Oh, so you're saying the white wasp English- right. Right. Dominance, watch or, or, wait, or yeah, like majority yeah. is yeah. now like Italians and right. other like now considered white people. Yeah, are not- I'm, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm talking a little bit at way outside my expertise okay. here, but some stuff that I've you know had to read for qualifying exams right. and things like that. I, you know, so just put in pop culture terms. If you watch Gangs of New York, yeah, boy, does that resonate. The nativism of the 19th century yeah. and in the early 20th century is something that you know it's endemic to to the history of the United States. It just tends to be something we didn't pay attention to because we were focused on on other divisions, yeah. focused on the civil rights uh, uh, struggle in the 20th century. Yeah. So the anxieties about immigration, the anxieties about demographic change, they've been here before yes. and we've gotten through them, but boy, were they painful. And I think you're right. Like we, I don't know if we're at, I don't want to use the word inflection point. I'm not sure. We may be, right. but it does seem like we are at a reshuffling where where the globalisms of the 90s and early aughts have really created- It's a backlash. Anxieties. Right. Yeah, in a number yeah, of ways. I think, I think yeah. you're right. I think we see the resurgence of that nativism again. Right, most certainly, most yeah. certainly. And so the big debate is how to respond to that, yeah. right? And that's that's going to be an ongoing debate. Is it economic anxiety or is it demographic anxiety, right? right? Or is it a combination of combination the two? combination of both, right? Probably. overlapping. Yeah, and, and feeding off one another. And so the ways in which we respond to that are going to be- play out in my little corner of the universe. So that's why I'm very committed to these things, like these sort of community groupings that are happening on the East Bay, because they cut across those tribal lines and other communities of interest. And it's why I tend to be on the side of being more inclusive as opposed to less inclusive, particularly now as I'm slowing down (laughs) with running. It makes sense. I mean, I think if, I think the default 
reptilian brains like all right, right like i'm gonna just group tribe around like people that look like me right i think that's dangerous yeah. if we if, right. if we continue down that path right right so i think yeah. we do need to just re-strengthen bonds across ethnic lines and right just shared culture shared values yeah i agree yeah, yeah most certainly yeah. it's interesting you know I, I grew up in a part of the country where these anxieties were felt you know a little bit earlier than i think the national conversation itself was happening in my hometown the local textile mill. Actually, the brand still exists, Canon Mills. Yeah. You can get them on towels at Target. Yeah. So they made, you know, sort of basic textile sheets and towels and things like that. Yeah. And that shut down in, I think, 1996 when I moved to Concord, North Carolina, where I grew up. Okay. When I was in college, the local cigarette factory, you know, North Carolina, big hub of tobacco. Well, that factory shut down, you know, when I finished up college, the year I finished up college. Mm -hmm. So there were real implications to the globalization of the economy that came home to roost. And they manifested in, you know, in ways you might imagine where, where it was really easy for resentment to bring hold. When I was growing up, it, you know, the culture wars was over gay people. Hmm. And being outside in short shorts made yourself a little bit of a target, particularly if you're a young guy <laughs> yeah. running around high schools and things like that. Runner, so you're relatively lean. And, yeah, you're lean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look vulnerable. <laughs> you're out there by yourself. Yeah. It's hot. You're not wearing your shirt. You're, not, you're Very little of your body is covered. Yeah. And that code says gay, yeah. and, or did in the late 90s and early aughts. Yeah. I go home now, though, I don't feel it as much. Hmm. Things have changed, at least yeah. in that sector of things. I, I don't it. get nearly, I don't get heckled as much, nearly as much as I used to. Yeah. So I do think that, you know, thing, people change. Humanity is defined by change yeah. as, as a historian, right? History is the study of change over time. Right. And so things will, you know, that is the one constant. So things will continue to change. It's just a matter of, I think, you know, doing the work to move the needle in the direction that we want. Yep. And it takes real engagement. So... Yeah, so I like conversations like this, which I think help. I hope yeah. they help. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is reflecting truth. I think people know when people are bullshitting or just mm -hmm. overly PC. And I think mm -hmm. I think that's starting to boil over where people are starting to react negatively against that. And I think mm -hmm. hopefully my sense is that if people just see more clearly mm -hmm. and talk to the facts more clearly, mm -hmm. rational people can come together and say, okay, right. like here are like the set of facts and right. here's what we should do about them. Right. Maybe the method to solve or resolve these facts could be different given mm -hmm. where people come from, but right. like the facts should be mm -hmm. the same. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully when people just talk about how people perceive facts and like the discrepancies and how people see things hopefully disappear, right? Yeah. The thing about facts though, is they're always put in narratives. Right, right? that's what I'm saying. Like, can, yeah. you, How do can we, we have a conversation where you just talk about just numbers? Right. Or things that are like quantifiable. Mm. There's a computer scientist in you coming well, out. Well, yeah, maybe yeah. that's overly naive. But then right. like, can we just bifurcate that a little bit? Where like, instead of interpretation and fact and narrative all in one, right. can we at least agree to a set of numbers and mm -hmm. trend lines? Right. And then from there, can we apply different lenses of analysis? I would hope so. I mean, objectivity is a staple in Western civilization for a long period yeah, of time. Yeah, now it's right? kind of getting dealt with like alternative facts. But yeah. I, I would like to think that like we, at some level, there has to be some agreement right. in terms of how we communicate. Like if yeah. we don't say that this is one cup, then I can't say anything to you. Correct. Right, yeah, like, yeah. there's nothing to talk about if we just kind of agree yeah. on some, if, if there's no objective right. reality, right. then, then how, how do we right. communicate? Yeah, it's sort of the George Orwell you know, worry yeah. of like, if, you know, if you can convince someone that two plus two is five, then 
I can't talk to you. All all bets are off. Yeah, I can't talk to you. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I wonder, maybe one of the issues is finding the baseline that cuts across some of these disagreements. Like, what's the thing we can agree on? And then working up from there. Uh, What are the values that we have? And then working from there and trying to dig down deep to where even if there are things closer to the top that divide us, there's probably something at the core where we can dig down to. And, uh, you know, you can't argue with crazy, right? So there's going to be a few folks who might just have to get off. You're not going to convince them. But I think there's probably a core set of values, a core set of truths that I would hope we can get down to and work from. Maybe it's numbers. Maybe it's uh, it's quantifiable data, right? Americans are very... um, Americans are fat. Uh, Americans are, are oriented around facts. Yeah. They're oriented around science. They're oriented around numbers and right. business. Yeah. And so, you know, the business of America's business. Someone said that once, right? I don't remember who it was. <laughs> so there's probably some places with which we can work from, yeah. right? It may not even be a matter of bifurcating. It might be a matter of digging down to find the core and then working up from there. I think so. I mean, I think just in my personal relationships and business career, yeah. that seems to be like, the only real way to resolve conflict. Okay, like what base thing can we actually agree upon and right. why are we diverging? Like how, at a certain point, there's gotta be something that we agree upon. Yeah. If yeah. there's nothing to agree upon, then like we can't do anything together. Yeah. But I, can you retract and reverse the thinking to some commonality and then understand, okay, why have you chosen to go left when I chose to go right? And then like compare the methodology of why that decision happened. You guys are in a business where there, I, it feels like there's that level of like supplements and diet. People are, can be, tend to be pretty tribal oh, man, about it's that. It's super dogmatic. Isn't it crazy? It, it is yeah, religious. The dogma, yeah, dogmatism is actually a good way of putting it, yeah. right? Yeah. How do you approach it then when you come across uh, someone's ingrained notion about the way the human body works yeah. and you're trying to change someone's mind. What are the tactics you use? How do you begin to have that conversation? You guys are a little iconoclastic. I would just, not maybe not iconoclastic, but you're, I think you're, we're you're, almost yeah. classic in the sense we're, yeah. we're just reverting to being scientists and engineers. Uh-huh. Okay. And science is a pursuit of truth and there's uh-huh. no untouchable idol in our realm of understanding human performance. Right. And I think we are attracted to and attract people that think in the same way of actually measuring and testing Mm -hmm. these things in practice. So I think, I know one thing that's really, really dogmatic in the nutrition space is Mm -hmm. low carb, high fat keto Mm -hmm. with like carbohydrate. I mean, I'm I'm sure especially as a runner, that's something that you think about. The classic battle. It's a religious holy war. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you follow like Tim Noakes Mm -hmm. and and, Mm -hmm. and the whole ketogenic athlete, Mm -hmm. you know, the the Finney Volek Mm -hmm. side of things. And then you have all these folks that look at, you know, gold-centered carbohydrate as like the one true path. And maybe this is where like the clash can resolve is that there's truth to both. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think these people are dumb. Like mm-hmm. what Noakes is seeing or whatever, whatever, like the low-carb people are seeing, there is some truth there. And what the carb people are seeing, there's some truth there. And I think what people are realizing is that you periodize, you cycle these mm-hmm. things and there's different mm-hmm. goals for different people and mm-hmm. for different parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if you are trying to be a maximal athlete and trying to win the Olympics, you're gonna have a very, very different protocol than someone who's, you know, right. 45 and trying to stay and be competitive. I think people like structure and authority, which why it attracts me to, to say that, hey, maybe we should just set a simple standard for people to aspire to. Right. Maybe that just like pushes the social community in a, in a direction that you seem, that you think is reasonable. Because I think humans, in, for better or worse, are seeking authority and seeking structure. Right. 
and I get why because it's it sucks to be in an uncertain world. But I think it's embracing uncertainty and yeah, and having a challenging discussion per case. I would imagine part of the reason why folks are searching for they're searching for an authority is you, know, you want to rely on somebody else's right. expertise because you don't want to have to be the expert, right. right? So there's that seems like that's the case. It's how you, convincing someone to take maybe not chances, right? But they sort of experiment a little bit with their own lives, with their own diet, with their right. own supplement, right? I think about myself and now I, I think I'm a little bit more receptive to that than I was when I was 20. Right. Where I was like, no, 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 this is what my diet used to be. Yeah. If it's not this. But then again, I was also like wearing the same underwear the day before races and the same right. socks out of superstition, right? Right. You know, you get your routines and your patterns. You think it works for you. Right. Actually, a better example of this and and how that can begin to blind you is um, the running shoes I wore. Uh, you know, back in the in the '90s, there was the paradigm of you know you needed stability, you needed arch support right. within your shoes, and there was a spectrum of arch support right. that you had to get under your feet. And at one point, I don't know why or why the person fitted me like this. Like, oh, you need you need a strong stability shoe. So they put me in this shoe, which basically had a wedge of hard foam yeah. underneath the arch of my foot. Yeah. For eight years, I ran with this wedge of hard foam underneath the inside of my feet. Yeah. And what happened? I had like lateral pain on the outside of my leg for eight years. So like I had an IT bandage. Just messed you up. Sort of. But why <laughs> didn't I ever question it? Yeah. Right? Why did I defer to the expertise of the shoe expert? Yeah. And eventually it, it took me like working. Thank God for the recession. The only job I could get after college was working in a shoe store, working in a specialty running shoe yeah. store. Sort of learned about it. Looked at my own feet. Like, can you look at my feet? Had someone else look at my feet. Yeah. Like, you know what? I don't think I need this arch support here. Yeah. Since then, that paradigm's begun to, to break down a little right. bit. Now we sort of realize, like, well, okay, well, maybe it's not just support. Maybe it's some of the activities we're doing. Maybe the maybe the foot functions in a different way. Right. Maybe we shouldn't be so worried about support. Maybe we should be worried about other right. things, right? And you know, it's a business, and so the marketing will reflect some of that as well. Right. But that is a great example where I lit, wish I had been more willing to not just question authority, but take some chances in terms of, you know, my own performance yeah. perspective. And so, and then I got out of those shoes and I, <laughs> I haven't had that lateral side pain yeah. anymore. It's why I was on the bike at one point was with all of that. Yeah. Helped a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I think it's hard that we get set in our ways. We, we, we know what we know. Right. right, so that's what I'm saying. Like maybe yeah. there's a meta community mm -hmm. around, I think what binds people that are interested in and what we do is that I think we all are sort of experimentalists or hackers in, yeah. in that way. And yeah. maybe you can build a tribe around people that are open-minded mm -hmm. to experiment. Mm -hmm. Obviously, mm -hmm. you follow what has the most robust data. Like, right. I don't think we're saying, hey, just try everything. Right. Like, not all routes are equally valid in terms of science right. and data. Right. But we are on the edge of exploring and pushing what is possible. And I think... That's yeah. kind of how we approach it. And I think that's, to me at least, it's like the most scientific way to engage performance. Yeah. Like science is always at the cutting edge. Right. Like if we know it, then that's like history. Like right. that's just a fact. Right. But in terms of pushing possibility, then yeah, we need to explore. Some will be, you know, false paths. Some yeah. will be valuable paths. And yeah. Like and, just, and the science never stops, right? Yeah. The studies don't stop. Yeah. The direction of the studies might change a yeah, little bit to yeah. reflect the interests that yeah. are that are happening within them. And so, yeah, I think so. Maybe maybe it is about creating a culture of, of I guess, a, robustness around yeah. like not mm -hmm. not being like, oh crap, our thing didn't work. Oh, right. Like we go home. Yeah. It's like no, it's fine. That's part of science. Right. Like if we just knew every single result before we try stuff, then like right. 
Right. Yeah. Maybe I'm God. Right. Like I right, just know right, the, right. I know the future. Like right. no one is that. Yeah. I think it's part of just embracing the experimentalist, the empiricist mm-hmm. that drives science. Mm-hmm. One thing that you noted, which I thought was interesting, was that especially in your writing, that there's a growing interest around elite performance mm-hmm. that has popped up in the last few years. Can you dive more into that and get a sense of why do you think there's more and more grab? Yeah, more of that interest. More, and I mean, it's a, and there's a lot of interest. It's an incredible amount of discourse around performance. Yeah, and it's I is don't that think true. Like, or has it always been like you know? The I, well, that's a great are question. Always cool, like the gladiators yeah. were yeah. like the heroes of their era. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it it not always true. Yeah. I think it tends to come in waves. Okay. There was another wave of discourse and study, scientific study on performance. And it happened at the beginning of the 20th century. And I don't know these studies particularly well, but I know them secondhand through uh, like folks like Alex Hutchinson mm-hmm. has looked at this stuff in his yeah, new book. Yeah, we chatted with him last week. It, yeah, guy's yeah. so smart. He's smart and he's such a great communicator. I really appreciate somebody who can combine scientific knowledge. Yeah, no, I mean, I think his background yeah. like makes sense. He's like a physics guy by yeah. training, and I think that again, that that blending of rigor with performance, yeah. I think, is, is is very complementary. One of the things he points out is that a lot of these early studies were on factory workers, hmm. miners, hmm. laborers, how to eke out a little bit more productivity oh, from them, funny. how to keep them from overheating in the mines, how to keep them from breaking down, yeah. literally, and so. If you want to interpret that like materially, economically, there might be an economic argument that we're living in a, in a, in a moment where productivity is very important again. Right. No one, I don't know many folks who don't spend some time as a freelancer now. Hmm. It seems like it's, we're in the gig economy hmm. where personal productivity is very important to our everyday lives. Yeah. I wonder if that's bleeding a little bit into the activities that we do beyond it. You don't uh. see your running as isolated from the rest of your life. I certainly don't see. Right, I don't. You don't see your activity, the sports, the things you do. You're, so even our leisure time are sort of interpenetrated through some of the larger, not necessarily anxieties, but motivations that we have. So I wonder if some of it is, again, as we mentioned, we're living in this sort of reshuffling of a global economy yeah. where you know, my dad worked for two people or two companies, I think his entire life, three. He was in the army for a little bit right. and then worked for one hospital and then worked for another hospital. I think I've I've worked for like 18 different people since graduating yeah. high school, right? So there's a level of fluidity. There's a level in which as we shift more towards maybe more precarious labor of, of contract work, as that becomes a the way in which folks are making a living, it becomes very important to think about your personal productivity, to stay focused, to be able to be mindful, to be able to churn out more code, to write more copy, to whatever it happens to be. Yep. It wouldn't surprise me if some of that is bleeding into the activities that we are doing for leisure, that, that yeah. those values would begin to reflect in our everyday lives. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting analysis because I've talked to reporters who've covered the rise of companies like ours around mm-hmm performance that like you know they ask me like you know why do you think this is happening and, and i make a similar argument that the global economy is getting more and more competitive mm-hmm. people's brain power is getting more and more valuable mm-hmm. and like the Pareto distribution of economic value means that it's just like any incremental improvement of productivity is worth a lot right if you're number yeah. one you're facebook you're number two you're myspace and right. like you're gone yeah so i think it's interesting to have you kind of reflect that thinking from what you're seeing and also expand it out into your leisure activities. Mm-hmm. 
I think you're right. I didn't really think about it, but I think. Do you know yeah. anybody who just does recreational bowling for fun? My friend Will says he bowls, but that's more just like because I can chat. It's like golf. Like it's like a, it's, anyways, it's changing. Yeah, but it's changing. I agree. It's changing. I think I agree. It's changing. I think it's that's just like a random. Strange, strange that one would drag oneself across 26.2 miles for fun. Right. Right. So that intrigues me. I don't think I have an answer to it, but it's an interesting question to ask why these admittedly esoteric activities, trying to become as fast as one can in a foot race and get from point A to point B, why that has become had more allure. Right. Why has it grown? Why has it happened now as right. opposed to some other point in life? Why are obstacle course races, like why are those becoming more interesting why is yeah. functional fitness becoming more yeah. interesting and i don't think these things that they don't exist separate from other spheres of life and so i'm really interested in how you know, like thinking about what the connections might be i don't right. have the answers yet I'm just beginning to ask the question yeah so i really want an opportunity to start to like dig deep and think about these things and so well, yeah, I mean, know, do you have any, do you have yeah. any initial insights i mean i think yeah. part of it can be driven by the notion that i think especially in america there is more leisure time perhaps that's a good point so i think people have to have a channel of com competitiveness mm -hmm. i think humans are innately competitive i think and i think both i think this yeah. is where it's interesting i think that competitiveness has been driven towards for a lot of history just like war mm -hmm. like our mm -hmm. country's gonna kill your country mm -hmm. i think that maybe have has gravitated towards sports teams mm -hmm. like our team beat your team yeah you get the competitiveness out but I do agree with you. There seems to be a trend where more and more people want to be the direct. They don't want to be a watcher yeah. or observer of the competition. They want right. to be a part of it themselves. Right. Again, it gets back to why these accessible heroes are so popular. Yeah. Because they see you can see an example of yourself happening. Right. Yeah, the, the evolutionary psychology example, like yeah. sort of this is the innate drive. Like that's one thought. Like yeah. this is where we're getting back to our roots. Right. There's there's Christopher McDougall, the guy, the guy who wrote the Born to Run novel, mm -hmm. also makes a similar sort of naturalistic, like where, you know, humans are born to run. Right. Right. And so that's there's this sort of notion of nature versus nurture thing. Like, right. oh, this is a nature thing. I guess it's interesting why, you know, if we are if if it's a war thing, like I've never played a pickup game of football where we actually played football the way they play it in the NFL. Yeah. I don't think anybody does that because it is not fun. <laughs> you don't want to get, get, crazy. get beat yeah. like yeah. that. You get destroyed, right? Yeah. So why then, you know, things like triathlon, why then things like uh, distance running or cycling, I think they, they fit well in, I mean, you could look at it from a tech angle. They fit well in the forms of quantification yeah. that we see in other Correct. points of life. Yeah, Things like Strava, you know, these, these mesh incredibly well with with these activities yep. very difficult to strava your bowling score right right very easy to strava your your ultra marathon yeah. through through the rockies yeah and playing in and you know there are interconnections with social media there as well but yeah. I, there's also a lot of folks who are just alert to the data so you know we're an increasingly data-driven culture yeah one of the websites that i go to to look at politic political analysis is 538, which is right. quote, data-driven political journalism, or right. just like any journalism, all right. their journalism data-driven. Right. Um, and so we're a we're fixated on data. We're looking right. for data. As you get, as you suggested, right? Like we were, we're looking for the hard truths of objective numbers, right. the one cup, right? We want right. to just see the one cup. And if we can figure that out, we can work from there. And right. so those sports fit well into that paradigm, yeah. whereas others maybe not so much. So- right. That's not the entire answer, of course, right? right? But it could be an answer. 
And then, you know, yeah. So, so that's one thought. I don't know if that resonates, but it could just be a little bit of bias living here where we, this is the most tech, we are in the center of the tech culture. And so it's maybe more but apparent. I would say that, you know, having the chance of pop out of the Bay Area more frequently mm -hmm. these days that people care about sport a lot. So like, right. I think maybe it's not necessarily as focused mm. around the technology mm -hmm. paraphernalia around, but like this core drive around like being competitive in like a sport, like a football yeah. Yeah. or being a peak performer, I think resonates beyond just the Bay Area for sure. So yeah. I think like a very intense microcosm of that, but I would say it is a global, like a macro phenomenon. Right. Maybe because it is like the like cult, like global culture is homogenizing. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of reflects back to your previous point. Like, do you th like you you you're spotting the trend where, you know, people's careers have now shifted towards more of contract gig economy, and I think that seems to be like the main line of thinking. But just seeing the pendulums of history, like every time everyone's like assuming that, you know, just project out that you know Japan's gonna be the dominant economy that right. you know has pivoted back. I mean, I think there's just been so many cases in history where you can extrapolate out another 50 years and like the whole world would change. I, I, yeah. I'm just wondering, could we see an echo boom back where people don't like the gig economy, going back to the community, right. the stuff we were talking about initially, where people aspire to be a part of a tribe or an entity and sovereign individual model of just like I'm, you know, myself and I'm interfacing with contracts with all right. the other collaborators. Right, right. Is that the future? Like I'm, I, like I think in Silicon Valley, you might say, yeah, of course that's the future. And I, I'm almost coming full circle back to, no, uh, people want a long-term mission that they feel worthy about. Yeah, that feels worthy of their limited time on this planet. Yeah, they want to belong-term working relationships with people with similar missions. Right. Can we see more of a reversion there? Then I think so. People want that, right? Yeah. It's why it's why you're seeing, as I was, as we talked earlier, why why people are seeking that out yeah. outside of work because they're not finding it necessarily in their own everyday mm, lives. Yeah. So, for example, here's a good example of how you know th there there are costs to things like a gig economy. Right. One of those costs are are is the precariousness of that existence. Right. When the gigs dry up, you are in trouble. Yeah. You don't have that security that you might have had with the stability of a factory job. Right. So, for example. One of my guilty pleasures is McDonald's from Uber. And so Uber Eats started doing <laughs> Mick delivery. And it's not a good deal. You'll spend <laughs> the entire meal on uh, on your on your delivery fee. It'll be twice as what you would have paid in person. But I did it twice to get my egg McMuffin and my coffee. Yeah. I like McDonald's coffee. So I ordered it. And then, you know, lo and behold, magically, 15 minutes from now, a woman showed up around like 1130 or so. I want you to walk out and I... I get my, my Uber Eats. I'm like, I you know this is a human being. Like, hey, thank you so much. How, how are you doing today? She's yeah. like, oh, you know, um, I'm I'm on my lunch break actually, doing a little bit of, of side hustle. Yeah. And I went, oh, how productive of yeah. you! How productive of you! Yeah. Just trying to give a compliment. Yeah. Then I turned around and walked around. I was like, that's actually kind of disgusting that this woman can't even take a lunch break where she can just sit and consume food and not have to work yeah, through it. She's jamming. Yeah, she's jamming, yeah. and I. I don't know. I mean, she, she could be very entrepreneurial or she's That's paying right. rent, yeah. right? And I imagine it's probably the latter. The latter. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, it won't surprise me if we see the rise of a new form of organized labor. 
right. oriented around uh, uh, this sort of contract labor. Right. Um, it would actually, I would be, I would appreciate that. You know, I would, I would recognize it and I would think it would be probably laudable so that people have a little bit more buying power from, or, or, or influence and power against these platforms that are so very profitable and that you and I take advantage of in our everyday lives, but at the expense of real human cost. So, yeah, I think people, I think you and I would agree that having a more mission-centered sense of purpose in our work lives, in our productive lives, would definitely be better, right? People like working towards something. They yeah. like being part of something that's larger than themselves. Yeah. The, the thing is, if people can't find that in their working lives, they're going to find it someplace else, yeah. which is where, and that can go in many different directions. And as we've seen, sometimes terrifying directions. Right. And so I think it's you know laudable to think about ways in which we could recreate you know the, those institutional senses of mission that we right. had at one point. Yeah, that's where I think the discussion around universal basic income or UBI mm -hmm. I think is discounting. Mm -hmm. I think they they have a overly simplistic story where like people just want money. Yeah, and I think that money is just a small portion of what people need as. A right. resource, right? Like people, I think. I think one of the most important assets for humans is a sense of importance, or it's like the spiritual notion of, like, like about like a, a meaningful life, right? That I think is not captured in, like, a UBI system, yeah. Which is like another concept that I think some folks in you know Silicon Valley or intellectual circles will be like, okay, like once robots take you know right. take over the jobs. Which has people on UBI, and, right? And right, people will be fine. It's like that's not going to be enough. If yeah. people don't give shove people with money and a lot of time and no direction, that's a really good. That's point. a recipe of kind of disaster. Yeah, it discounts the sense of of uh, social value yeah. that people get or were getting from the economy. They they would never get from yeah. a check or a, a direct deposit in their income. Yeah. Sure, right? Like it's every little bit of money helps, but people. Well, Aristotle said that humans are social by nature, right? Mm -hmm. And the uh, UBI doesn't tick that box, right? right. It is it is an it is an economic uh, salve to something that might be a little bit more systemic of a problem. Yeah, it's interesting that that cuts that has uh, has people cheering for it on the right. You're sort of Silicon Valley libertarians, right. and then people on the left, some some labor unions, like look, you know, some of these jobs aren't coming back. We right. need, this is the quick fix. Right, but it's often seen as the quick fix. It seems like there's an ease to it, right? That both mm -hmm. sides like. It cuts through the bureaucracy that the people on the right hate. It provides the direct aid that the people on the left like. And it seems like there's a, a way in which that, you know, you can find the consensus where you could move that forward. It's also something that's easy to study, right? So yeah. you're technocratic wonky folks who'd be like, well, <laughs> we'll see how this works out. Yeah. We'll give, we'll give a, a UBI to folks in Oakland and see how they spend it. And we'll, right. And then we can tweak it and, and, you know, it's very like centrist in that yeah. sense. You can find adherence everywhere, but I would share your suspicion that there's something about that is still missing. I would say that like, I think one of the most interesting, uh, I guess, tweaks of something like a UBI mm -hmm. that might fall in line with more marketplace type, type, you know, more capitalist type thinkers would say that, okay, you just take away all entitlements, mm -hmm. like you don't give yeah, exactly. education, exactly. health insurance, exactly. you give UBI, yeah. and then let the individual decide how to allocate like what was gonna just be given to you. Right. Now you can actually spend it and now you can maybe, uh, that could, could kind of be interesting where you get like- The hyper-rational 
approach to thing where where you you presume instead of offering services, just give them yeah, the money. You give them and, and let them make their own decisions. Yeah. yeah, and then you make everything a marketplace. The problem yeah. with that is that you know human beings. Make the problem with markets decisions. is that not all things work well in markets, right? Sometimes they can create toxic outcomes. I think healthcare is an example of that, where we've had a market-based system for a long time. And even when or we try to market-based, I think that's like a, actually an interesting topic, right? Like yeah. it is a weird market. It's Literally. a weird market. It's a market. Well, it's like so. One yeah. on the right can say like it's overly regulated market, exactly. Or like you can't, which is where you, yeah, out of yeah. a state line, right? Now yeah. you have like these weird monopoly, right? Systems, right? It like is, education, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty nuanced. It's a nuanced discussion. Yeah. It's yeah. a nuanced discussion, and it's outside of my wheelhouse to get yeah. into to all those debates. But I think, but I would wonder, like, if you're, you know, you're sure you you if you if you commoditized everything and and then gave like a basic, you know, like here's your your allocations of things, and you created a market as such. It seems like there would probably be some unexpected costs that we wouldn't have envisioned in terms of, you know. Where would the middlemen arise? Because yeah. there would be the middlemen. Yeah, I would say, like, yeah, I think these, like, running a nation state is a very, very complicated system. Right. Like, I don't think anyone's smart enough to, like, take all that state in. Yeah. But I would say that, like, just like there's, like, unintended consequences of our current system, there will probably be, like, just as, maybe yeah. less, maybe more. I, like, yeah. it is some yeah. range of unintended consequences of any other government system. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate the thought experiments. I tend to be, one of the fellows who sort of falls in the line of like, what are the moral outcomes that we're trying to gain? Like, what are the moral values that we have? We have, and one of them should be like, all people should get a basic education. Yeah. So my general thought would be like, well, we could game that out in any number of ways. Of like, how you know, we could like rationalize, like, okay, we'll distribute you know a certain level of income. People could pick their own choices, or you could just provide the education in the ways that we you know have defunded in a lot of ways, and so. This sort of where I fall on a lot of these questions is sort of, which makes you fall more on the left of the center, right? In terms of thinking in that way, right. in terms of more of the social democracy ways. But, but yeah, but these, these questions are fraught because they're hard. Yeah. And yeah, man, we got to UBI. Yeah. What a fascinating conversation we've had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe drawing this back more towards the performance <laughs> perspective, you mentioned that maybe this is, goes back into like, the participation culture. Or, yeah. But- so like this, this like recent notion around positivity yeah. in running, this positive mindset thing. Yeah, where it sounds like you look if you trace back in yeah. the history, a lot of it's very stoic. Right, and maybe just adding some color there. I think there is some recent literature suggesting that this positive, you know, self talk is actually yeah. improving on performance. Right. So maybe, but I'm actually curious, like you know, get your thoughts on yeah why you think there's a structural change and and how people. The, yeah. the, the attitude towards a performance has seemed to evolve. It does. It does seem like positivity is is important and become important and coming increasingly important. Yeah. yeah, I remember reading there was even some wild um, article. There might be some study that shows that if you smile during a hard effort, it yeah. tends to make the effort feel easier. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that seems to make sense to me. That positivity, that they're real. There might be performance outcomes that right. happen with it. I've just noticed though that are in a lot of ways. Not just in terms of performance, but again, it sort of it bleeds. It never stays in the same yeah. the same zone where it's supposed to be. Social media is a very positive place in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, it can be very toxic. If you watch Instagram, right? Like I noticed, I, I scroll through my Instagram feed. Everyone's highlight clips, right? Everybody's got that like. There's that Instagram smile that I think of it, where people are. It's like it's like they someone like there's a like they just got presented with a birthday cake. It's yeah. that 
You know, yeah, it's a yeah, combination yeah. Of, of like insane smile. Like, like, I'm really happy. I'm really happy. Yeah. And I think part of that is because, you know, you respond. You know, like we like seeing people happy. And so the engagements to happiness are higher on social media. Mm. Well, think about it, right? Like you're more likely to get the likes and the clicks and the it's a sort of self-reinforcing behavior. Negativity doesn't do well in the algorithms of social media. Right. So, you know, I think a lot about how this become more common. I, I have a good friend named, um, he's a he's a very good trail runner named David Roach. He was, he was here in the Bay Area. Uh, his wife was in medical school at Stanford and he was an lo- environmental lawyer. And now they've started a coaching business and they're, and they're in um, the Front Range, Colorado Front Range. He's running a book called The Happy Runner. It's probably going to come out sometime in the next year. And it is, and his, his, whole, his whole business model is one based on positive thinking and positivity to the point where I sometimes am like, dude, just frown. Like at some point, like he's like, oh, I had this like horrific race. It went terribly bad. I blew up. I threw up. But you know what? It was great. Yeah. It was like, oh, you need to. It's a marked departure from the way even in the 90s when I was growing up where there was a real culture of suffering that was ingrained in distance mm-hmm. running that I think came out of maybe it's working class roots in the beginning of the 20th century where not nece- not entirely working class roots, but you know, a lot of like English clubs based on neighborhoods around working communities where you like do cross country meets and fields through the mud and slop yeah. and you know, show people a clean pair of heels. Right. We fetishized in the nineties things like Alberto Salazar, the American the guy coach of, of Galen Rupp, having the duel in the sun with Dick Beardsley where right, they, like these are grinders. These grinding yeah. guys who just, you know, they kick it out and they spit blood at the end. The uh, head coach of the Colorado University of Colorado cross country team. Uh, Mark Wetmore had this sign on his desk at one point that was like res severa aram gaudum. I'm missing the Latin, but it's yeah. something like, it is a joy to be serious, yeah. right? Like, you know, tuck it in, get the work done yeah. and move on. That's changed. And mm-hmm. I suspect it's because these activities are way more visual and they're incentivized differently. The only... Thing I can think of is social media that has changed a lot of this, where particularly now, given as we we're talking about, everybody is a little bit of a personal brand. Yeah. I try very hard not to think of myself as a personal brand. But if you know there are potential ambassadorships or sponsorships on the line, you need to think that way. Yeah. If there's product, if there's shoes that you can gain, you're incentivized to think that way. Right. If you're in this sort of like messy milieu of like semi-competitive, semi-professional running. You're, you have to think this way, right. where social media matters, where people are looking for those accessible heroes. Right. You need to smile and you need to be, and, and so I think, I think that's the, the causal chain. That's the one that I'm pulling out. Yeah. I don't know, what do you think? Does it? There's definitely directional truth there. I mean, yeah. obviously I think people do build a brand around just being real, right? So right. showing like them being like, you know, when they're not winning. Mm-hmm. But I think direction, that's because they're counter opposing yeah. the trend of everyone being positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the counter the counterpoint to that is like, well, no, actually authenticity is what people are really driving for and want right. to see, which is maybe a good counterpoint. There are some narratives now. But, where, but I would where, say like direction, yeah. I think you're right, that mm-hmm. everyone, you always want to have like that positive spent the end. Right. Right, like, ah, yeah, mm-hmm. like a, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I think it's, it's very common to like, yeah, have a really brutal race, bonked, can, I, the last four miles were brutal, and but yeah, it was a great. But it was a great. Time. It was great, yeah. right? And I think yeah. 
Like there has to be like a positive moral to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even when you get the athlete who's struggling with depression, right? You'll get the like the. So there's a there's a beautiful video about the ultra marathoner Rob Carr who has struggled. Not I don't want to use the word struggle. I don't like the notion of like a battle with depression. You know, he lives with with depression. Yeah. In the way a lot of us do. Um, and there's a great candid interview of him talking about you know mental health alongside physical health as being part of the spectrum of that. Yeah. And I actually now got to think about whether it ends with that upswing. Right. Because, you know, these things, these issues don't end always positively. Right. right? Sometimes they just are. Right. Yep. So I guess there's the contrarian in me that's a little bit bothered by the, the positivity yeah. d- direction that we're in because some things just are. Right. And it doesn't always work out for the best. Right. But, but, Part of the thing that's beautiful is that we we can empathize and we like we know these things yeah. and w- like we can struggle together with them. Right. And if we just think they're going to work out fine, we might be less likely to struggle together with them or to right. empathize with somebody. But like, you know, you know, it'll be fine. Maybe it won't be fine. Right. It's not always fine, but that's okay as long as we can figure out ways to be there for each other. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess that's why I kind of grind my teeth sometimes because. Maybe, maybe it's not just about, you know, being positive and happy. Maybe sometimes it's about being sad, but recognizing that to, to not win, to not beat it, right. to not be happy, right. but to be better, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I think I like the Stoic philosophy. You know, I think it's interesting, like, read something like Marcus Aurelius and mm-hmm. get in his mindset of being in, you know, Roman Empire, kind of being sieged by barbarians mm-hmm. and what it's like to, like, yeah. control all these things outside of his direct control. Have you ever thought of like ways to apply that, say if you're in an uncomfortable, like say when you were running the half marathon, have you ever? Yeah, I figured, will. Yeah. I mean, I think I've been experimenting with the positive mindset attitude based on data showing that if you smile or see smiling faces, yeah. you get a, you yeah. perform better, Yeah. right? Versus like seeing sad faces or being like frowning. Right. So I think I've been applying some of the positivity mindset towards some of the physical aspects. But I think the stoic mindset for business is really applicable mm-hmm. in the sense that I think for, at least for me, I'm not trying to win a competition for running, but I think for a business, it's like kind of like- You've got so much swirling around you. Right, so yeah. I think this, the the stoic or like not blinded by optimism or swayed by optimism right. view is just like seeing reality clearer than others. Yeah. And I think that with a world where everyone's spinning mm-hmm. positivity or negativity or everyone's mm-hmm, like running mm-hmm. their own agenda, if you can just like see the world clearly, mm-hmm. you can react more optimally to this changing environment that we're operating in or we're living in. Yeah. So I think in that sense, not bullshitting yourself kind of mm-hmm. thing with like, oh, we're going to make it always positive. Right. I think it's important because you need to respond to facts properly. Like if a bullet is coming at you, you can't like smile it away. Like the bullet's coming to you. Yeah, so it's a good point. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. There's not a binary between positivity and negativity, right? Right. Not at least not in human experience. Yeah. There tend to be a variety of places and ways you can look at things. And of course, there's the the objectivity of the real world and dealing with it. Yeah. I sometimes think that mentioning stoicism, you know, one of the things with you're in your own head when, um, I've written a, a, some stuff about how painful distance running can be. Yeah. And when you're in sort of, you know, the, 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 the phrase is the pain cave, right? Yeah. You are really like dwelling on the discomfort in ways that are bizarre. And yeah. one of the ways that 
you always try to like, can I disconnect myself a little bit yeah. from this suffering experience? It's something you think about, I've thought about like, is there a way in which, because you are almost sort of, like at a certain point you sort of reassess, you go like, man, Don't want how have I found myself yeah. in these terrible circumstances yeah. and how can I get out of them and how much time do I have left? And, yeah. and But sometimes you can be even more circumspect and be like, Man, I'm really this like you're sort of looking down on yourself, kind of like you're like you're in a part of your brain. It's like, man, observing. This is this is like really he's really suffering. Yeah. Um, I wonder how hard he can keep grinding. Yeah, and there's you can almost be intellectually curious about your own performance as is happening. Yeah, but usually you need to get back in because that's not. I find that you can't disconnect yourself and run well. You yeah. need to be in it. The moment you you leave and totally. disassociate, you slow down. Right, and you can't hold your hand down on on the pedal in the midst of it. Yeah. And so and that's what makes it so hard is because you have to just yeah. feel it. And not be and again you're right. Like if you're thinking to yourself, I can do it. Yeah. I can do it. Like we can get through this. Yeah. Your the performance outcomes are much better than like I there's no way. Yeah. You'll stop. You'll quit. Yeah. You'll slow down. If yeah. if you know suddenly, right? When, once you give up, it's over. Yeah. So yeah, there's a there's a baseline in which you need to believe in yourself. Right. Right. And that belief in yourself is the is the way and, I, and, and whatever those, those motivations to believe in yourself can be any number of things. Yeah. You're reasoning for doing it. Some people, it's just a payday, right. right? But that can be enough to motivate you. I got kicked down once by a 40-year-old Russian in a race. And I, I was like, man, this guy was, he was flying. He was flying. And then I found out that he was a master's runner, right? And there was a okay. different payday for, for right. those guys. And and for me, it was like, well, I was going to- EPO. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, but I just wondered like, why well, I was like, I finished like like 18th. What yeah. was the big deal to finish 17th? Well, it was a big deal. There was real incentive. Right. So incentivizing things can can help. And so, but yeah, so it's an interesting tension of, uh, anyway, you just said you're, you're speaking of, of Aurelius, maybe think about that a little bit. Um, yeah. And and being unbothered by the world, being in it is, is a tension and yeah. difficult. I mean, I think one common thread that I've seen across athletes and folks that we work with is that because you just have done this so so much, you just get accustomed to that level of pain, right? right. Like I don't think there's that much mind gaming or, right. or like to, to, to reprogram your brain. I think it's like, okay, at a certain point, that is right. like program right. yourself to understand this level of pain threshold right. and just eat it. Like yeah. just enjoy, I know it sucks, but like you're, right. you're used to it. You've been there 15,000 times. Right. It's not nothing new. Right. Yeah, and I think it's like okay, and I think that's like the difference between someone like me and someone like you. Like you know how to put yourself in that pain threshold and hold it there, right? Or like someone like uh, less experienced there. It's like gonna be like ah, I don't know if I can even hold this for that long. Yeah, and the thing is, just you got it's is that there's a process to get there. Yep, there's definitely a process to get there, and and everybody says this like I'm not talented, I just work hard. Like that's not true. Like yeah. I know there's a certain baseline which I've been very blessed and lucky yeah. to get a certain like abilities to do this. But it is possible. Like I, I don't think that like my running abilities are beyond the pale for a lot of people. But it's a long process. There aren't many shortcuts. It's a lot of time, and and um, you got to play the long game yeah. to become good at anything, right? Yeah. You can't think in terms of the short term. Yeah. You have to think in the long term, and that's true for for anything. You yeah. can't think in terms of weeks. You certainly can't think in terms of weeks. You certainly can't think think in terms of months. You probably shouldn't even think in terms of years. You should think, like you know. Five, six years. You got to put in the time yeah. to, to if you really want to get good at something. Yeah. If you really want to have expertise, the or ability, it it's just hours. It's just yeah. No, I yeah. mean just knowing a little bit about running. I mean, getting up to like 80, 90, 100 miles a week is not easy. I it's mean, not easy, and not, it's not something one should try to do like, in a year. 
Yeah. It's one of these things. It's, it's, we're maybe a year for aggressive, like Michael Brandt, but like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. But that's like, aggressive. Yeah. It's aggressive. And you're risking injury. Yeah. That's like one thing that I've realized a lot. Yeah. Like, I think more and more it's about in, injury prevention then. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, you push yourself, but like, if you can just not stay injury free, mm-hmm. you just get, you will just outcompete your competition. Right. Anytime you get an injury, you like, out for it's, so long. it's weeks and weeks yeah. and it's it disrupts things and yeah. it's just less time on your feet yeah then you have to build back up again yeah if you look at the people who have long-term success in in distance running you know they're talented they're good at the activity in and yeah. of itself but one constant is they rarely get hurt yeah. my good friend magda boulet who's a she went to the olympics in the marathon in 2008 i she gets hurt like she's yeah. had injuries but not very many yeah. And when she was competing on the roads, she didn't get hurt very much at all. Mm. And since I've known her, I think I've, she's had one injury, maybe. And I think it might have been like a trauma-based injury. Yeah. Like she's gotten lucky in a it trail race. Sense. I mean, yeah. basically, she can put in high, much more high-quality hours exactly. than anyone else. And it's like, yeah. okay, if you believe in the notion that input in is you know somewhat linear correlated with output, then yeah, yeah. she's just put in better quality hours than anyone yeah. else. And some of this is practice. Yeah. The lady goes to bed at 9 o'clock. You know, it's hard. For, I, I, it, it's, yeah. She's disciplined. Yeah. And and so it's not just genes. You know, some of it is, you know, as you said, like the discipline and, and the mindfulness to yeah. being aware of that. Yeah, let's move to some audience questions okay. and uh, have a little bit of a popcorn here. Sure, sure. So Matt Duffy asked, what's the worst running advice you've gotten and taken seriously? Ooh, the worst running advice. Uh, I think I got to a little bit. Focus on the short term. It okay. wasn't any single bit of advice. But I think we're highly incentivized to look for the short deadline for the upcoming race, right. the upcoming season. And if I wish I could go back, take Sam Robinson from when he was 16. Yeah. And you're so motivated. Everybody wants to work hard. Right. There are very few people who don't want to work hard. The real struggle is to play the long game. Yep. I wish I could go back, take, take him aside, shake him, be like, it's not this season. Don't think about this season. Don't think about the next season. Don't think about high school. Worry about college. Don't even think about college. Wait, you know, you're going to develop. Maybe don't, don't, don't throw the huge heavy miles in this right. summer. Wait, have some patience, build slow, develop your 16. And I think that's true, not just for, you know, adolescent, young athletes. I think it's true for a lot of folks in a new yeah. activity. Play the long game. If you're really interested in it, if you love it, stay with it, but take it slow. Yeah. And, and that reflects some of the conferences and summits that I've been involved with where, one of the mantras is that like everyone always takes the easy days too hard and the hard days not hard enough and you're just yeah. always like kind like you're working hard but you're like you're you're not pacing yourself right right you're always pseudo going hard so you can't go really really hard when you need to and you're not resting and recovering when you actually need to which is a long process yeah yeah cool uh Yousef via our podcast at hvmn.com writes in and asks what do you think draw different personalities to different types of exercises you know i Mm. I guess he spoke a little bit about just like your baseline body size but like weightlifting versus running yeah but i think that's kind of more obvious but the personality question is interesting yeah the personality question is kind of interesting and i think there are a lot so like in my own little little world of of distance running there are a lot of commonalities a lot of type a personalities people very goal driven it's very easy to quantify distance running so people who are very interested in personal improvement can find a place where you can begin to see micro gains are easy to see right you know, you can see like, oh, it's faster on, on but intervals. What about weightlifting? But, like I just, I lifted yeah. two more pounds on my bench. Yeah. I don't know why that doesn't appeal to me. 
right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. But I can see, for me, I, I wonder what the differences are. I mean, gosh, I would think some of it, Yusef, might be if you're good at something, you tend to get rewarded at it. Yeah. And at, at a certain level, we're, we're all kind of rats pressing the buzzer for the cheese. Right. So people who are good at weightlifting tend to like it. I guess I think about like, what would be some other activities I'd like to try out? Right. They actually don't tend to be the more endurance ones. Mm. Like I'm interested, like, I'd love to get in, more into climbing. I'd love to get into some martial arts. Which arguably is endurance-based. Yeah, climbing is endurance-based, yeah. but a very different kind of thing. Like you're not moving much. Right. And and, it's, they, and people who are who are climbers and sport climbers probably say like, oh, it's there is some quantification that can happen in this. There is right. training involved. And part of it might just be my outsider knowledge of it. Right. But um, it seems like there's a level of body awareness that's different yes. in those activities. Yes. Certainly certainly in martial arts, there's a yeah. level of body awareness that must be different. And I think that's fascinating and is an appeal there that I'd yeah. love to learn more about. So yeah. I can see how you know you could get in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think just for me to riff on that question, I think mm -hmm. endurance athletes can take pain more mm -hmm. in the sense that like it's very painful to like lift like super heavy. Mm -hmm. You're done in like 30 seconds. Yeah. And for sprinters, so maybe a yeah. maximal pain yeah. for 30 seconds, like a sprinter. Mm-hmm. Versus like, like I mean, running a marathon, you're doing two hours. Yeah. That's like, you, you can't hide no, in like no. a two-hour run. Yeah. And if you're a sprinter, you need to be very f interested in the types of real technical drill work right. to get that short, explosive burst. And it's all about perfect form. And so there might be a level of like, you know, the interest falling there. What draws someone from one set of activity to the other? Man, I, there's got to be a number of different factors involved, but maybe we it's an intuitive sense of just like you're born and or just people luck. around you thought it was cool to like yeah. be a basketball player. I'm sure there's a lot of soccer yeah. players who are soccer players because that's what Ronaldo people... is their hero. And... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brian Gillis asks, you've competed at a high level at both trail running and road. What do you prefer? Why contrast, compare? In terms of racing, it depends. I tend after like I've been going through like two year cycles between racing, doing trail racing, and then moving back onto the roads. And right now I'm on kind of a road cycle. There's some specificities between the two events. And so if you're gonna do trail and ultra marathon stuff, you need to work on running uphill and downhill um, and sort of the technical footing, getting your body able to do that. That's not a challenge in road running. It's a much more um, homogenous, not homogenous, but it's the same motion yeah. that you're doing over and over again. It's much more about eking out those efficiencies over the, whatever the distance is that you're yeah. running. So I tend to bounce between those and I think mixing it up a little bit is probably good for yeah, long-term cross-training. Cross yeah. yeah, but the trails are great, especially we're blessed here to be surrounded by so much open space. Yeah, it's fun to just It go is fun on. to go out Basically, on the trails and, yeah. Yeah, and get away from it. But then also, it's so hilly too. I wish there were a few flatter yeah. trails in the east. <laughs> like, there's one, like there's some stuff on the bay, but you got to run alongside the freeway. And it's like, oh man. Yeah. It used to be like one flat trail in right. the woods, but that, that doesn't exist. So that's kind of the trade-off. Sometimes you want to take a little easy. Sometimes you just, you got, you, you don't want to run through the evening commute yeah. um, and you want to go out in the woods and you can do that. So- yeah. So it depends on where my head is. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, again, as a much less experienced runner, but like a road is nice, just like you know the route, you know right. exactly how to benchmark yourself. Right. right. But it's like fun to run in like a beautiful like hiking trail. Like yeah. Instead of hike it, just run it, and it's like whoa, it's like yeah. fun. Yeah, you're. It's like a kind of a massage on your feet because like the road, you're just like slam, 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 right. slam, slam, slam. Right. But like rolling the ankle a little bit in different ways, kind of yeah. feels nice. It's like kind of a. And if you need Angle that, massage. if you need that more meditative experience yeah. in the, in say like in the after a hard day of work, yeah. 
you'll get more of that if you're running in the woods. Yeah. You know, it's it's just quieter. So your mind gets quieter. Yeah. So I appreciate I appreciate both, but you know, the trails yeah. are nice for that. And I think I, we'll end with a fun question. Okay. What is a beer mile, and uh, why is it a thing? What is a beer mile? Why is it a thing? Yeah. So, <laughs> so a beer mile is a. Uh, ah, God, who thought of this? It must have just been collegiate runners. Yeah. Um, it is where you um, drink four beers over the four laps of a mile. Oh, so okay. you drink a twelve ounce beer. So there's there are different rules. Yeah. But the Kingston rules, which are the North American standard, is you have to drink a four percent beverage which you use budweiser as your yeah, standard it's like a kind of a light yeah you can use beer. a bottle or a can it's yeah. a lighter beer it's not too yeah. too heavy yeah. but it, it it can't be below that so it can't be a really like a session ale or anything yeah, like yeah. that um you have to drink the beer run a lap drink a beer run a lap do it two more times so four laps and you have to drink a beer before each lap yeah uh, if you throw up you have to run an extra lap okay. which basically disqualifies you yeah, in a competitive yeah, sure. race yeah. and it has become incredibly competitive there are now world championship races that bring out guys who can run this thing. What's under, the world record? Well, the world record, I think, is uh, still like 420-something. Somebody just set it again in Canada, a guy named Corey Belmore. And, oh, man, I, I'll send you the link. You can put it in the show notes. Yeah. It, is, it is a work of sheer grace to watch <laughs> this guy run so fast consume these beers in six or seven seconds so are you are you, you have to be stable to keep are you so a oh, good question great running, question there like... there is a um a chug zone okay. an exchange zone where you can pick up the beer and yeah. walk while you're drinking it so yeah. you can continue to move but it's not very it's like 15 or 20 meters at the most right so not, you can and it's not easy to pound liquid oh, when you're running uh, do i think the beer mile is the most uncomfortable experience yeah, i'm, I'm so that. bad at yeah. it i'm so bad at it it's so <laughs> awful it's a lot of liquid it's it's one of the every time i do it i get into the middle of the second lap and i think i regret doing this again it's so uncomfortable You're adding three about three pounds of water yeah yeah, yeah it's so so much fluid yeah. um you turn into a volcano at the end uh Does everyone just boot at the end uh some don't um to to finish cory belmore yeah. ended yeah. up so now to keep things too standard, they will do measurements of your beer. So you might drink your beer and finish and go, and how do you know if you didn't pour it out or right. something, right? So they'll they'll measure what's left in the bottle, and they'll have judges make sure you're not spitting it up or right. or emptying it. He had too much beer. I think four. You can't have more than four millimeters left in all of the uh, beer bottles. Okay. So he was disqualified. But goodness, it has gotten fast. I mean, these guys are running sub sixty second laps. Plus the beer. Oh man, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild. It's a little bit of a kind of a fraternity-ish kind of looking yeah. thing. Seems to come out of like American binge drinking culture, but yeah. well, not necessarily American binge drinking culture, but uh, global binge yeah. drinking. Culture. I was in London for last summer's World Championship and saw these guys, and you could say that they are drinkers with a running problem. That yeah. might be a charitable. <laughs> it was. I, there was a lot of drinking, yeah. um, even not involving the beer miles. There were just a lot of beer. <laughs> yeah. More beer than I can handle, that's for sure. We got it. Maybe we'll do that at some point. It's, it's I think <laughs> I think fun. everyone should try one once. Yeah. It might be all you need. Um <laughs> as I said, they're hard. They're, yeah. It's and it's not the alcohol. It is the quantity. It's the fluid. That's yeah. the challenge. Yeah. That is the challenge. I mean, yeah, you're not gonna be drunk. I mean it's too quick to actually Far get too drunk. Quick. You're just Far like got a pound like bubbly liquid Malt and beverage. holding it down and you're basically mm -hmm. sprinting and like yeah. pounding as half fast as you can. The third taking down the the third lap's always hard, and then that drinking that fourth beer really difficult. And if yeah. you can get into that fourth lap, usually, you know, because it's the final lap, you yeah. can hold it down, just get get to the finish line. Yeah. But there's that there's like a minute there, sixty or 
two minutes or so where you're drinking and thinking like, I got to do one more after this. And you've, again, you've turned into that baking soda and vinegar experiment. It's yeah. all shuffled up. Under, that's you know. also because like you're running around. You're running around. It's jostling the CO2. Yeah. Yeah. They can be. Like if you, usually these things are so informal that you bring I make it as much as possible so there's less CO2 in there. That's I probably would. true. I had a friend, I have a friend, a physicist. You guys, yeah. you guys doctor in physics at, at Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, he thought he was thinking this, he's gaming this out. And he's like, well, look, you know, carbonation may not be the best option here. I'm going to use a nitrogen-based beer that that is effervescent through so he did Guinness, uh, thinking it would be easier. Yeah, it was not. It was, it was Guinness. It's even more. Foamy. It was yeah. more, yeah, more foamy and, and a heavy, you know, malt based beer. So less sugar, but more whatever is in Guinness, and yeah. it didn't work well. It was yeah. a train wreck. Because <laughs> <laughs> so also like the Guinness bottles have like the thing that makes it more foamy too, right? So I can imagine just like it's just like super foamy. Oh yeah, you know, put down. Yeah, it would be it would be yeah. awful. But yeah, that's the beer mile. Yeah. No. Awesome. I mean. Let's let's wrap up here. I mean, where do people find your work? I mean, like yeah. obviously an interesting conversation. Yeah. But you know, what's next for you this up you know, rest of the year? Yeah. Where do people find you? So I have a, a my portfolio writing is on uh, robinsonsamuel.com. I'm on Strava. You okay. can find my running on Strava. I'm pretty you know, it's a fun network. And uh, I put out a newsletter every week. It drops usually on Tuesday nights called The Breakfast Club. It's oriented around a, uh, a morning run that I do every Thursday in Oakland. People are welcome to join. We run about, it's a little fast. We run about 7.30 pace for about eight miles, but gets together a lot of different folks, girls and gals, nice. or guys and gals. Nice yeah. hour out. Nice hour out before yeah. work, 6.30, 7.30 or so. And I'm on Twitter as well, at Sam, son of Robin. Folks want to hit me up on Twitter, but Strava, Twitter, and then my website and my newsletter, places where pretty pretty active and engaged on on the socials as the kids say all right yeah <laughs> awesome thanks so much for coming thanks by. so much jeff appreciate, appreciate it. it man as always please send my producer zill and i feedback at podcast at hvmn.com itunes reviews are always appreciated and remember you'll score a free sprint mini in the process appreciate it thank you so much and talk to you soon